God before us, God beside us, God behind us, God above us. Be also now between us, a bridge through which your truth may move. In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's be seated. Your mama. <laughs> Did you ever hear that growing up? Did you ever use it? Your mama, your daddy, your grandmama wears combat boots. Something like that. You'd say it usually in jest, but sometimes you'd say it trying to zing somebody a little bit, trying to get at them, talk a little bit about their mother. That's that's a pretty bad thing when you're a kid. I mean, it's a bad thing anytime, but now you just like, whatever, you move on with it. But when you're six, it's much harder to do that. You don't move on from things like that because your mom and your dad tend to be your whole world at that point. So you don't like it a whole lot. And you know, many times you use those phrases when you're a kid and you have no idea who their mother is. You don't know their father. You don't know their grandmother. You're just saying it in one way or another to classify them and to tear them down in some way, to say something insulting to them. And in many ways, this is indicative of, or it begins a lifelong career that we all make out of tearing people down. Um, I am not, uh, I'm not an exception to that, right? I unfortunately um, have, have, joined in that kind of behavior myself from time to time. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But it's not just the playground games that we play where we can classify somebody as this or that or kind of put them in a stereotype because of their family, because of their mother, their father, whatever it is. How about this one? Well, her mother was Irish after all. So she's probably this or that. Back in the 20s, 30s, Irish need not apply, right? So to classify somebody as Irish, since I am Irish, um, yeah, I wouldn't have liked that very much. That would have limited my possibilities because of my lineage, because of my father or my grandmother or my grandfather. She is Italian, so she's probably very emotional. (laughs) How's that for a sweeping stereotype? He is black or he is white or she is brown, so he or she must be this way or must be that way. It's an election year, or it's going to be an election year. feels like we're always in an election year, doesn't it? (laughs) Particularly in my family um, right now. Um, Well, you know that he is a Democrat, so he must be this way. Well, she's a Republican, and you know how Republicans are, right? If we can automatically write someone off because of where they come from, we can separate the heart and personality from the person. We can in many ways make them a caricature when we do that because they're not human, right? A caricature is a cartoon. Um, And so we're learning this at a very early age. It starts on the playground, but we continue it into adulthood. When we make someone into a caricature, it is easy to tear that up. It is easy to kill that caricature literally and figuratively because it's a cartoon after all. 
You remember if you ever looked through any book of World War II and some of the posters that they would hang up all over Germany of Jews, they were caricatures. They were larger than life, the noses, the beards, the everything else. And so when you can take someone and make them into something less than human, it's very easy to treat them less than human. And it starts at an early age, doesn't it? So we take all of the negative stereotypes about a person, about a heritage, about their family, their mama, their daddy, their grandmama, their people, the sins of their mothers and their fathers and their grandmothers and their grandfathers and all of the bad things. That person becomes the sin eater, don't they? They become that person that takes it all on themselves. All the bad things of those people from the south or those people from the north or those people from the left coast or from the right coast or from wherever it is. We heap it all onto them without ever really getting to know them, without ever knowing their story about where they come from, simply because of who they are or whose they are. Guilt by association. You are this, so you must be that. Your mama, your daddy. I see this playing out at least in today's Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah and the prophet. And I hear God saying through the prophet, because I'll disabuse you of the idea of thinking that this is a modern thing that we do, that we heap judgment on stereotypes or on people or on whole classes of civilization. It's been going on since the dawn of time. We learned it, and it's been passed down. It's in our DNA almost. And it was going on at this time too. And I can hear God saying to the prophet Jeremiah, don't do that. Stop it. You know better than that. Right? So where are we? Let's, let's look at where we are in today's lesson in the Old Testament, which is where I'm going to be spending most of my time. The northern kingdom of Israel. You know, oftentimes we think of Israel as just this whole classification of people, and it was. But when we talk about Israel and Judah, those were all the Israelites. Israel was in the north. Judah was in the south, with Jerusalem being their capital. Israel had fallen several hundred years prior to this. And now in 587, Jerusalem fell so that the southern kingdom was no more. The Israelites were scattered, right? We messed it all up. So now there's no Israel, there's no Judah. It was generations of disobedience, they would say. It was because of your mother and your father and your grandmother and your grandfather. It goes all the way back to the people wandering in in the wilderness, right? Could never be content. It's just a part of who we are and who we've been, right? This is why this is happening to us. That did this to us. And now it's too late. And so God says through the prophet, don't do that. I'm going to take it all, and I'm going to plow it all up into this field, and I'm going to do something new, right? Something new will come of this, something that you can't hide behind. You can't hide behind the sins of your mother or your father or your grandmother or your grandfather. It's going to be you, and it's going to be something new, a new covenant, and it won't be based on the law, something that you can hide behind, because, you know, you can do the law pretty well and still have a heart that's not true. You know, I could go through all of the motions, right? I can do all of that, but my heart can belong to the world and not to God. 
You know, I can put the Ten Commandments in my front yard on a sign. And you'll think, wow, he must really love God. I can put it on a t-shirt. You know what? I could even carve it in a big piece of stone and put it in the rotunda of the Capitol. But you know what? I don't think God cares one whit about that. I don't think God needs to see you parade your faith around on your sleeve or on the bumper of your car. I think what God wants is have it written on your heart. Because when it's written on your heart, it's with you in the dark. It's with you when nobody's watching you. It's with you when there aren't a whole gaggle of cameras in front of you. And you patting yourself on the back. And not just you, me too. When it's on your heart, you belong to God wherever you go. Whoever you like to say you are, if your heart belongs to God, that's where you are. And so God says, when your heart belongs to me, I will make you a new people. You will belong to me and I will belong to you. Even in the midst of exile and darkness, you will not forget me because I will be with you. And I will help you rebuild. I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. It's a clean slate today. Just give me your heart. And y'all, that is good news to a people who had carried around the burden of generations of sin. When somebody is saying your mama to you and isn't letting you play the other reindeer games with the others, that's a freeing word. Because it's not going to be about my mother or my father anymore. It's going to be about me. Who do I belong to? What do I do? I've been in churches before where people are like, well, you know, uh, my grandmother built this church. My great-grandfather, you know who he was. I don't care. <laughs> and guess what? God doesn't care either. <laughs> you know, I can pretty much... You know, I, there are a lot of things I can say. I just don't know how God really feels about that. I can tell you, God doesn't care that your grandmother built the parish hall. Okay? Just doesn't care. What God cares about is where your heart is. What about you? What are you doing today? Where are you walking today? Where am I walking today? And yet so often we don't give our hearts to God because of who we are, because of where we've come from or what we've done, and we even prevent others from doing the same. He did this and he calls himself a Christian? He says he's a Christian, but you know his family. And fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? We've all said that in one way or another. Or we say these things about ourselves. And that's the more dangerous thing, isn't it? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me when it comes out of your mouth. But what about when it's playing that loop in my head, saying you're not good enough? Or you really think you're going to do that? Who do you think you are? Oh, you say you belong to God, but... What are you thinking? 
Or we associate someone and their value because of their family status or because of their work status or what have you. There's a great story. Mark White, former governor of Texas, was driving through, I believe it was West Texas where his wife was from, and they were driving and driving, finally found a gas station, stopped at it. This was kind of in her neck of the woods where her people were. And so she met this gas station attendant or began talking to him, and Mark White could tell that they had maybe had a relationship, maybe a high school sweetheart or something like that, you know, that tension that goes on when you're running to somebody that, you, that, you have, uh, that you've loved at some point or another. So he didn't really say anything. And then they got in the car, and it was silent for a while. And then he said, yeah, you knew that gas station attendant, didn't you? He said, I bet you were thinking that, that if you'd married him, you would be the wife of a gas station attendant today. She said, no, not really. I was thinking if I had married him, he would be the governor of Texas today. <laughs> Love to classify people, don't we? Oh, yes. Y'all probably heard about the brown-eyed, blue-eyed study that they did back in the 60s. Jane Elliott, a teacher in Riceville, Iowa. Couldn't do this study today because it is scandalous, but the results are something that speak to all of us and to all of our hearts and to all of our lives. What she did is Jane Elliott took a class of kids in, in general harmony, as much as you can be when you're in the second grade, or I think it was second or third grade. And then she decided to do a little study for, I think it was Brotherhood Week or something like that. So she took these kids and she separated them. She said, okay, all the brown-eyed children come over here. Now all the blue-eyed children, I want you to come over here. I don't know what happened to the green-eyed kids. I guess they probably got put with the brown-eyed kids. (laughs) And so then she began to separate them. Brown-eyed kids had to line up with brown-eyed kids. Blue-eyed kids had to line up with blue-eyed kids. And then she began to do something a little bit devious. She began to give the blue-eyed kids a little extra time on on the playground for recess. And she'd say, they get... And when somebody would raise that as a fairness issue, justice issue, she'd say, well, of course they're getting extra time. They have blue eyes. Okay? So then she'd have them line up to go to lunch, and the blue-eyed kids got to go first. And when somebody would raise a question about it, she'd say, of course. They have blue eyes. Of course they get to go first. You brown-eyed kids get to go last. You don't get this because you have brown eyes. Setting up in their lives, an attitude of blue eyes get better treatment. They're better than brown-eyed children. And as this played out over the days of this week, it began to play out in the children's lives. And they began to say, you can't sit here because you have brown eyes. They'd say, brown eyes, brown eyes, use it as a derogatory statement. Oh no, brown-eyed kids can't play over here, you got to go over there. Brown-eyed kids don't get extra milk today. That's only for the blue-eyed kids, and that's me. So there began to be this superiority among the blue-eyed children, and they began to separate themselves accordingly now, just naturally, because of what had transpired. And it even played itself out on the playground in violent ways, pushing and shoving. And one of the brown-eyed kids said this at one point during the study, or when it was over, 
When we were down on the bottom, everything bad was happening to us. The way they were treating us, you felt like you didn't even want to try to do anything. It seemed like Miss Elliot was taking away our best friends. Your mama, your daddy, your grandmama, your granddaddy, our father. Our Father. Our Father. He made you. And He made me. He made you if you have blue eyes. He made you if you have brown eyes. He made you if you're black or if you're white or if you're a Democrat or a Republican. And He loves you and has loved you from the beginning of time. And this day, the good news for the people of Israel and the good news for all of us is that he gives us a new covenant. A new word spoken into your life. Spoken into my life. And he asks for our heart. For if that love is written there, we will never forget and neither will the world for they will see it in us. In the way we look at the world in the words that we choose, in how we treat other people, in what we do to say, my hope is in the living God and I believe in something new and it is not of this world. I am in this world, but I am not of it. And you will see a love and you will see a peace and you will see something new through me and through everyone whose heart belongs to God. Will you give your life to Him? Will you give your life to him in the crucible of the fire, on the playground of life? He has given his for each and every one of us. Amen.